Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. If you, at one point, had a habit of reading the Word before you went to bed, so the last words in your mind weren't Jay Leno's, but Jesus' words, man, there is a radical difference in how you sleep and how you dream and what you wake up thinking about. And so the problem is, as we get out of the Word, well, we are going to find our faith weakening. In part two of Pastor Sam's message, Mountaintops and Valleys, we start back up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 17. Life can be a roller coaster ride, especially in our walk with the Lord. It's just nice to know that the Lord never changes, ever. Let's listen in as Pastor Sam deals with the roller coaster ride that we can sometimes find ourselves on. There's yet one more thing related here to verse 18 before we can move on, and that is that. As Jesus rebukes this demon, it's, it's an actual event, a historical event, freeing one child. There's a spiritual picture, a prophetic picture that develops for us. You see, when Jesus returns from heaven, and here's the picture, he's on the mount. Well, not hard to envision that being like heaven, especially in the transformation and the, the glory that they saw. When Jesus returns from heaven, we're told he is going to bind Satan and establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Why does he bind him? We're told specifically that he could deceive the nations no more. So Jesus returns, he binds the enemy, and the kingdom is established. Well, that was sort of happening in a very minute scale, a one-on-one scale here. This child that had been, well, somehow possessed by this demon is now freed by the Lord and handed back to his father, healthy and whole and vibrant. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, we read in verse 19, and they ask, what happened? Why could we not cast him out? It's worth pondering what happened. Why does such a thing happen? How can it be that we know the Lord, we experience the Lord, we walk with the Lord, we grow in Him, He uses us, and then we find ourselves in seasons of, well, fruitlessness, and and our faith begins to waver. Before we look at what happens specifically in this situation, well, here's the word, He says, because of your unbelief. We'll go that far and pause for a moment unbelief. What's the source of it? Well, it might surprise you to know it's natural. It's normal. The normal state of human beings is unbelief. You talk to the majority of people out there, they don't believe in Jesus. So it's not unnatural to walk in unbelief. It's actually supernatural to walk by faith, to walk in belief. And here's what I've learned, that my faith in him, my confidence in him is often directly related to the proportion of time I'm spending in his word. And here's why. I can't live for days and weeks and months on what I've learned or experienced in the past. No, I need a fresh and vibrant relationship with the Lord. And he's built me that way. And he's built you that way as well. He's made it so that unless we're in the word, our faith begins to weaken and waver. You know that this is true physically, You can fast for a day or two, wouldn't do any of us any harm, I imagine. There might be a couple that would be the exception. 
You can fast for a couple of days, and he's going to talk about prayer and fasting in a moment. And that's not going to do you any harm physically. But if you fast for days and days and weeks and months, well, you're going to get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker physically. And I find far too many Christians fasting from the Word. Oh, we wouldn't ever put it that way. We wouldn't call it that. We'd never say, well, I'm taking a fast from the Word. No, I'm just too busy in the morning or I needed that extra 40 winks or whatever the case might be. I don't know what your experience presently is with the Lord as far as the time you spend in the Word. And I don't share this to trip you out or make you feel guilty or make you feel bad, but to encourage you. If you've never experienced what it is to start every day in the Word of God and to take a little pocket Bible so you can nab some time at lunch and just read through a little more and consider what the Lord is saying and how He might be working in whatever situation you find yourself in. If you at one point had a habit of reading the Word before you went to bed so the last words in your mind weren't Jay Leno's but Jesus' words... Man, there is a radical difference in how you sleep and how you dream and what you wake up thinking about. And so the problem is, as we get out of the Word, well, we are going to find our faith weakening. And you see it. You know people that were strong and they were walking and they were serving and they were growing and then you see them and they just seem spiritually weak. Well, the proportion of time I spend in the Word will have a direct correlation and relationship to how strong I am in my walk with the Lord and my faith in the Lord, and thereby even my faithfulness to the Lord. So i got to make sure, just like you, that I budget my time wisely. You know, I think most of us lack serious time in the Word, not because we're doing a lot of bad stuff instead, It's often the good things that choke out the best things. And we have families, we have responsibilities, we have homes and cars and and things to care for and people to provide for. But in the midst of that, it's often the word that is neglected, the Lord that's neglected. And so Jesus tells them, well, it's because of your unbelief. Now, I don't know how long Jesus was up on that mountain. And I don't know what was going through their minds as they were left behind. And Peter, James, and John once again had that place with Jesus. But he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Some have read into this statement of our Lord that if we have mustard seed faith, and you must know a mustard seed is just the tiniest little thing, and it grows a relatively good size mustard bush. But, but, But here's the deal. Some have suggested, well, he's saying if you've got the seed, that's sufficient because that can grow into great faith. But that's not what our Lord is saying. He's saying the mustard seed faith is enough faith. You don't need great faith. You only need a great God and mustard seed faith in that great and glorious and faithful God. It's not how much you believe, but the one in whom you've believed. That's the foundation here. That's the essential here. It's the age abiding principle and and lesson for us that if we have enough faith, just this much mustard seed faith, he's saying, hey, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. Well, How can I then make sure that I have this faith? Here's the good news. 
Every man has been given a measure of faith. What it comes down to is, where is my faith being placed? In whom or in what am I trusting at any given point in time? And so Jesus is saying, hey, mustard seed faith will be sufficient. It's not me trying to increase my faith. It's me trying to deal with my unbelief. That's why the father didn't say, give me more faith. No, he said, help my unbelief. He recognized that there was a battle within. He believed and yet he struggled to believe. And that's where many, if not most of us, will find ourselves at some point. So Jesus says, mustard seed faith, sufficient faith. I do believe that unbelief is often amplified when we focus on the circumstances and the situations. When we have our eyes on the Lord, hey, it's easy to trust in the Lord. I mean, we know what he can do. We know what he's done. We know what he's promised. But when I forget the promises or I'm not walking close with him, well, then unbelief begins to take over. And rather than finding that anything is possible for me, or nothing impossible for me. It seems like everything's impossible for me and nothing's possible for me. And then Jesus adds this little postscript. He says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now again, there's something sort of intriguing here. Jesus doesn't say, what we need to do, fellas, is get together and have a little time of prayer and fasting. No. Jesus comes down the mountain. He sees the situation. He's confronted with it. And immediately, he does it. He deals with it. The reason that worked for him, don't misunderstand. It isn't just because he was the Son of God. No, it's because he had a lifestyle of submitting to the Father. I do always those things that please the Father. He had a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, a close, intimate connection to and an intimate relationship with the Father. That's what Jesus was about. The fasting, hey, that was common for him. It was a regular habit to deprive himself physically that he might focus spiritually. And I'm thinking this, if our Lord found prayer and fasting necessary, how much more each and every one of us. How much more do I need to pray? Do I need to fast? You know, when we are in the Word, if we're focusing on what He says is true and what He promises to do, the more I consider that, the more I mull it over and and contemplate it, the more I believe it. But when I'm preoccupied with other things, and again, fasting in our context, in our situation, if you think primarily food Well, you got to know that's not all it's about. We need to take a media fast. Seriously, I I share with you that, that if there's anything that would enable me or you to have more time, not just reading the Word, because here's a typical morning, even if you're in the Word, you get up, you take some time, you read the Word, but then you go and you, you flip the radio on in the car and then you get the work and the computer's up and you're checking your email or you're checking your voicemail if you're doing those things. That's my life. And what happens is, even when I'm in the Word, oftentimes I don't have time to reflect and contemplate on the Word. Well, yeah, I was there. I met with them. I heard from them. But now it's the busyness again. And I'm finding I need more and more time, not less and less time, as the years go by, 
to think about, to contemplate, to consider what the Lord is saying to me and what he wants me to do in response to that, that he's saying, well, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus is telling them, man, you're going to have to be focusing on a continual relationship with the Father in Jesus' absence. And he's trying to teach them because, well, he's going to be leaving them. They could have just connected with the Father. They could have said, Father, what's going on here? He'd already taught them to pray, Our Father, and to ask, to seek, and to knock. He'd already commissioned and empowered them to do the very thing now they're failing to do. And they say, what's gone wrong? And he says, it's your unbelief. You're walking in unbelief. They should have been praying. They should have been fasting. I don't know what they were doing, but they weren't praying and fasting. Well, while they were staying in Galilee, verse 22, the Lord Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has clearly spelled out for them that he's headed to the cross. I made mention of the fact that even on the mountaintop for Jesus, it was about the cross. They met Moses and Elijah to talk with Jesus about his exodus, about his decease, his demise, about the experience he was facing on the cross. Why? Because... They knew that's where he needed to be encouraged, where he needed to be strengthened, where he needed fellowship. And so they talk and they meet and, and Jesus is on that mountaintop. What does Peter, James and John see? They see the glory. They see the future. They see the kingdom. They're excited. But Jesus sees the cross. And then he comes down the mountain and he walks into this mess and he deals with the mess. And then he immediately turns and he says, listen, it's about the cross. It's not, it's not about the glory. It, it's the cross and then the crown. It's the cross and then the kingdom. So the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Their response? They were exceedingly sorrowful. They really didn't know how to process this information. They're beginning to get that he may be talking to them about a real future event. And what it does is it breaks their hearts. It causes them pain. Why? They can't put it all together. They can't see how will the kingdom then be established? How will then you be glorified? How will we find our place in the kingdom? They were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, the passage actually ends on a lighter note. And, and I'm grateful for that. And here's why. Passages about demon possession and death, well, you know, it's kind of nice to end on taxes. Now, some of you might be thinking, taxes? That's not lighter to me. But compared to demon possession and death, let's face it, taxes, well, they're a no-brainer. They're easy. You just save and you pay. Well, or you don't save and you pay. But in any case, when they had come to Capernaum, verse 24, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and says, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? The nature of the question is accusing, as you can see. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? No doubt the taxes were overdue. They'd been traveling out of the region, out of the area. Now they return. And the accusation, the suggestion is that Jesus wasn't paying 
the tax. Now, the temple tax was established specifically for the care and the upkeep of the temple. That's why they call it the temple tax. It provided for everything that made the temple in its ceremonies and its sacrifices work. And so they come asking, and of course, Peter, and, and you can almost sense the, um, oh, I don't know the, the, the right word for it at this point, but, but sort of, you know, when somebody's on you, how you get a little defensive, you can sense that defensiveness in his response. He says yes, but you just know that the accusation itself was troubling. When he'd come into the house, though, we're told Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their own sons or from strangers? That's a simple question before we look at Peter's answer. Really, all he's saying is, look, there's a king. He's got a family. He has a whole group of subjects. Who pays taxes? His kids? No. He doesn't pay the taxes. His children don't pay the taxes. The people that, well, he's responsible for and are responsible to him, they pay the taxes to support him and his family. That's all Jesus is saying. On a broader scale, you got to know that even in that day, Israel was under... Well, they were under the Roman rule, and so they were subject to the Romans. The Romans would subjugate people. They would extort taxes from them, and in the midst of it, they didn't have to pay for themselves. They had others paying, and that's what he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their own sons or strangers? Peter knows the answer. He says, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless lest we offend them, go into the sea, or go to the sea, cast in a hook, take out the fish that comes up first, and when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money, take that, give it to them for me and you. Now, before we look at a couple things here, I gotta say, I can't help but think when I read this, Lord, could we try that again? I mean, I'm not much of a fisherman, but how I would love to find my taxes in the mouth of a fish. And certainly you feel the same. And here's what's happening. And there are some things that aren't all that obvious, but once I draw them to your attention, they become that. And you train yourself by really observing the text and considering what it's saying. Here's the first thing that you should see if you don't already, is that Jesus was walking and living in poverty. The very fact that he couldn't pay this tax meant he didn't have any money. It was two days' wages, the temple tax. And if he had any cash on hand, he could have just flipped him a coin and said, hey, go and take this, pay our taxes. So Jesus was living in poverty. He was without the means to pay his taxes. That should be a comfort to some of you. I'm certain there are lots of you that say, hey, that's me, I'm there. I'm in poverty, I'm barely making it, I'm barely surviving, and now these bills and now those bills. Know this, Jesus is concerned. And I'm, I'm thinking that the reason this little story is attached to the others, he wants us to know that, well, while we know, hey, if the doctors can't help and no one else can help, help he's our only help. Yeah, if it's something way serious, we, we know we got to go to him. But get this, even if it's something simple, we can still go to him. He's still concerned for our needs and, and what we're about and what we're going through. So we see, first of all, his poverty. He didn't have the money to pay the taxes. Then we see his power. 
And I was reading someone and they suggested that this was the only place where Jesus used his power to meet his own needs. But I want to tell you, he wasn't meeting his own needs. He says, lest we stumble them or offend them. He said, the sons are free. The temple was his father's house. He didn't owe the temple tax. No, others should have been supporting it, but Jesus didn't owe it. So he wasn't really meeting his need. He was just keeping from stumbling others in this situation. And we see his power. He's able to say, go catch a fish, take the fish. First fish you catch, open its mouth. The coin for the taxes will be in it. Now, anyone who thinks that's a coincidence really needs help. There's no way it's a coincidence that you catch a fish, open its mouth and find your tax money. No, this is the power of God being demonstrated. And get this, we're told in Isaiah that all of God's creation is subject to God. You know, the only part of God's creation and rebellion to God, well, the demons, first of all, who rebelled with Satan, and then people, how ironic, those beings created for eternity, glorious and fellowship with God, created to worship God, rebel against God and and then mankind, created in the image of God, blessed by God and loved by God, rebel against him. Well, in any case, the power of God is that he controls his creation. And so he makes a way, he provides a way, his power demonstrated. And then there's his provision. And if you're going through it, whatever the struggle might be, whatever the problem might be, know this. He says, go and catch the fish, take the coin, go and pay the taxes for me and for you. The Lord never does just for himself. He's always looking out for others. Peter was the one confronted. Peter's taxes are met. Peter's needs are met. But there's one other thing, and I want to conclude with this because it's, well, it's encouraging as well. You know, it's an awesome thing to work with the Lord and to be in the ministry for the Lord. And I hope you know that as surely as God has called me to full-time ministry, he's called all of you to full-time ministry. And your ministry is wherever he has you. And that's the circle of people where he strategically placed you, the opportunity you have to shine for him. But, but here's the thing. Our participation in the work he's doing, it is completely, well, Let's just say he does all the hard stuff and we just get to do the fun stuff. We really do. What does he send Peter to do? He sends him to fish. What does Peter know how to do? He knows how to fish. You think he enjoyed fishing? You've got to know he did. And so he says, here, Peter, I'll, I'll let you participate. And Peter's like, oh, cool. What do you want me to do? Just go catch a fish. Ah, oh, I can do that. That'll be great. Lord, have him fish for a while. And, and then open its mouth and pull out a coin and that'll take care of our tax problem. I, I find it interesting that the Lord is often sending me on missions and sending me to do things where all I got to do is believe him and obey him and everything goes just as he tells me it will. But what happens if I don't believe him? Well, problems ahead. What happens if I don't obey him? Even greater problems ahead. And so, like Peter, we need to hear the voice of the Lord, know the word of the Lord, know the will of the Lord. How do we get it? We get it in the word of the Lord. We open his word. We say, Lord, I don't want to just read some verses or read a story. I want you to speak to me personally. I want you to work in and through me radically and wonderfully. And as we do that, he's like, hey, that's what I chose you for. That's what I was waiting on. 
So Peter, go catch the fish, find the coin, pay the taxes. The Lord is saying that to many here today. Hey, I already have provided. I've made provision. It's just ahead. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe the Lord. And then you need to obey the Lord. If you're going through a struggle, a season, if it's been a long time since the mountaintop and this valley experience is getting old, just come back to Him and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when He speaks to you, yes, Lord. There are so many scriptures that describe our Lord as the source of our strength. For example, Isaiah 40:29 says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Well, why does He do that? Well, it seems to me that the mountaintop times that we have, alone with the Lord, are part of that strengthening process. Also, we can have the strength, faith, and courage to be used during those times in the valley where the work is difficult. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.